Mindfulness Mode 127. Instead of focusing on the outcome, which usually causes attachment, I just focus on the process. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Greg Faxon on the line today. Hey, Greg, are you in mindfulness mode? I'm ready to go, Bruce. Great. Greg Faxon is a coach who works with high-achieving entrepreneurs and converts them into champions. He believes these individuals are the multipliers of society. Greg has a background as an athlete first a wrestler, and then he was into obstacle course racing where mud and trail runs present mental and physical challenges. Greg is intent on changing how the world tackles poverty, so he's making his own difference through a non-profit organization called Acumen. Greg's goal is bold. He says, by the end of my life, I want to have helped more people unleash their full potential than any other person in the world. So, Greg, tell us, what does mindfulness mean to you? Mindfulness, when I think about it, the main connotation for me is intentionality. You know, I love the word deliberate, and that's what I think a lot about is mindfulness for me is a way for... uh, So it gives me kind of an opportunity to zoom out of whatever's triggering me in that moment or whatever my, you know, my attention is focused on and get kind of a bigger picture view. Um, Took me uh, years of forcing myself to do things like meditation in order to actually want to do it. In other words, I had to kind of develop that habit without seeing the short term gains. And it's only in the last year or two that when I feel myself get triggered or I'm not so clear, I'm frustrated to actually go upstairs, sit down, meditate and use that as a way to um, get kind of get present. And now I kind of use it like medication, whereas before it was a habit. So, um, yeah, that's what it means to me is, is being intentional, having a pause to be intentional. Well, Greg, let's talk about your meditation practice. I saw you meditate on that amazing video you have on your website. Tell us where your uh, history with meditation started and and what it looks like today. Sure. So my background is as an athlete. In high school, I was a prep All-American wrestler. Um, I did some obstacle course racing after that. And I think that that's when I really realized the importance of the inner game, you know, as Tim Galloway would call it, of of the mind, the thing that's happening internally, not necessarily just the strategies and hacks to be successful externally or the challenges that are coming up externally. And, you know, if you had seen me when I was a freshman in high school wrestling, you would have seen this jacked up kid all fired up listening to rap music, trying to basically pump myself up. Um, And I went 0-2. I lost both rounds in the All-American tournament that year as a freshman. If you would have seen me as a senior, you would have seen someone before the match essentially sitting you know, on the side of the mat waiting for his match to start breathing and meditating. And the reason that I made that change was because I realized that uh, being too, it wasn't about the drive, but it was about kind of that arousal, being too high, being too tight, being too fired up before a match. And I realized how that was affecting my performance because when I'd be in a tough match and I'd be trying one move and it wouldn't work, my mind wasn't able to be flexible. And, you know, in sports psychology, they talk about the arousal curve, right? So if you imagine on the x-axis, 
kind of physical or mental arousal, how kind of psyched up you are. And then on the Y, the vertical axis, your performance, um, it goes up for a while at the beginning. So the more fired up you are, right? If you're asleep, you're not going to perform that well. So it goes up, 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 and then it peaks. And then what I didn't realize is it goes back down. So you can be too kind of hyperactive. That's what was happening to me. And that's kind of what I realized throughout the course of my wrestling career. I think that's probably the first time that I really saw the power of a meditation practice where you kind of let you try to drop down, let yourself be in the moment and take away some of those that weight or hyperactivity that's going to affect your performance. Right. So when you first started, how long did you meditate for? You know, I think it became a formal practice in college and I think I started with the 20 minutes just because that's kind of the basic prescription. When I talk to people who are starting now, I usually tell them to do, you know, like 60 seconds for a week of counting your breath just because when we're thinking about habit formation, you want to get small wins and they'll kind of just increase naturally. But for me, I think I was probably told 20 minutes. So I would do that um, at first sporadically. I didn't, I didn't know how to make it a habit. It was one of those ones that was really frustrating to develop the everyday thing with. And then I had a mindset shift, which was, I do all this stuff to strengthen my intellectual mind, right? I've, I'm in school, I'm starting a career. Um, I put a lot of time into that. I'm doing a lot to strengthen my physical body, right? I was working out every day. That was obviously a high priority. But I wasn't doing anything to strengthen kind of my emotional center or my spiritual center. That was totally sporadic and ungrounded. So I kind of had to step back and say, um, why are you doing all this work on, on these things, but not in one of the areas that's so central to your actual being and your actual performance? And I think that's when I made the switch and went to the 20 minutes. And I knew the only way I was going to do it was first thing in the morning, which is still how I do it now. So that's the first kind of part of my morning ritual is a 20 minute meditation. Yeah, mine too. And I noticed on the video, it looks like you're using essential oils or something like that. Tell us about that. Yeah, I had a, I have a coaching client, you know, a past coaching client who runs a company that makes essential oils and uh, she sent them to me one day. And so I love them. They're great. Uh, her brand is called Stinky Yogi. They're made, it's kind of a funny name. They're made specifically <laughs> for people who do yoga. Um, but uh, yeah, I have kind of, I burn essential oils and I also one of the big things I'm excited about is I got kind of like a meditation stool, one of those ones that you kneel, kind of kneel on. Right. Because I never was a cross-legged guy. Like I would always tighten up my hips. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't just like sitting in a chair because we kind of do that a lot. So it wasn't didn't feel like a separate mode for me to be in. Okay. So meditation stool was great. So I just kind of have that stool and then, you know, a kind of blanket to to have that on. Yeah, I see. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because it looks like it's a specific place and a specific situation where you do that every day as part of your routine. Yep. Yeah, and I've actually started, what I realized was if I did it first thing when I got up, sometimes I would be a little groggy. So Mm -hmm. these days I've been walking down to the river. I live on an 80-acre farm property, so I just walk my dog down to the river and I just kind of do a standing meditation there. So I've been experimenting with that, but I am a big fan of having a separate you know, separate space, separate things for the things we do in our life. Before we moved out to West Virginia, we lived in DC and I both worked and slept and lived in the same studio apartment. And that's kind of tough because things bleed through, you know, if you don't establish those separate spaces. So that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. That happened for me too. I worked out in my house for a long time and it was really hard to separate myself from the work that I did. I, I found that really challenging. Yeah, and I still work from home, but now I have a door I can close. So that's, uh, a, that's okay. a big benefit. 
That does make a difference. Yes. So you were involved in obstacle course racing. Tell us about that and how mindfulness would have helped you with it. Sure. Yeah. So after I did a little wrestling my first year in college, continued that. But um, when I left wrestling for other things, I noticed they still had that competitive. I was still working out, but that competitive side of me wasn't being engaged. So I found Spartan Racing and a huge fan, huge fan of that brand. And the races were a blast. I felt like I was a little kid again. Um, For anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's obstacle racing. It's basically usually held at a ski resort and you're carrying sandbags, going under barbed wire, basically a trail run with with strength obstacles. And, you know, I think the same exact same factors were at play that were in wrestling is really noticing that my performance day to day could either be good or it could be bad. And that didn't necessarily depend just on the physical shape I was in. It was depending on kind of whether I was in the zone, whether I was kind of at peace with um with where I was at and was whether I was able to be focused on uh, the race and kind of pushing myself. So, you know, I think the biggest thing for something like obstacle course racing is having a very microcosmic focus. You know, sometimes when we're doing things that are hard in our lives and our businesses or in our fitness, it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm only in mile one and then I'm going to have to do this for another hour or something. And that can be a really deflating thought. So with something like obstacle racing, I think mindfulness plays in most when it's like, can you, am I willing to just lift this stone now, you know, and just focus on that action? Because that's really what's happening in the present and not overwhelm myself with all the other stones I'm going to have to lift in the next three miles. Yeah, I find that too, just taking the one thing at a time that you're doing right at the present moment makes a big difference. So you've talked a lot about great things that you've been doing, you know, the wrestling and the racing and these things. Have you had any challenges? Have you had any anything that just really was tough getting through it? Specifically to athletics? Well, I was thinking of athletics, yes. Yeah, so... I mean, sure. All the time. It's like, where do I start? Um, I mean, one of the things that occurs to me that was a big turning point was after that freshman year of wrestling, I had a uh, torn meniscus and they tried to repair it and it didn't work. It ended up basically being a six, kind of a six month recovery. And I couldn't do a lot of the things I had learned to rely on for training. Like I couldn't run and I couldn't do that much wrestling. And I think that it was interesting because it for I still wanted to do something. So it actually forced me to work on my strength a lot. And it forced me to be flexible and say, okay, I hadn't imagined myself as a wrestler whose advantage was lifting weights or strength. I had always seen myself as a runner by training. Um, and so that was kind of a setback that caused me to alter my training and actually develop different strengths that really helped later on and made me more well-rounded. Um, that's, the, that's the one that comes to mind is just that knee, man, because that was a... Uh, that was a pain in the butt, especially since we had that first operation we thought was going to work and then it didn't. So injuries um, still to this day, I think really knock me off my center because I really identify with that physical strength that I've developed. That's a big part of who I see myself as is someone who's fit. I'm, I'm actually going through an injury right now. And that can sometimes be when we identify ourselves as, you know, I am an entrepreneur. Right. And then the business isn't doing well. Well, what does that do to who you are? Right, what does that do to your self-worth? And so injuries are one of those spots for me that are constantly forcing me to be mindful and, uh, and take a bigger picture view. Right. So you separate yourself from that idea. You make sure that that idea is not becoming implanted in your mind. Is that how you do yeah. it? Well, yeah. There, I mean, there's, we can dive into this. This is one of the things that I love to talk about. It's actually one of the things that I go over a lot in my book, which is coming out, which is called Don't Let the Fear Win. And essentially, one of the problems that 
high achievers have, people who are high performers, probably people who are listening to your podcast because they're people who like to grow and improve, um, is sometimes we end up tying our self-worth to what we accomplish. Um, and that actually works for a little while. For a lot of people, they, they kind of depend on that strategy for motivation and for perseverance throughout their life. Because if you believe that what you achieve determines how valuable you are as a human, you're going to work, you're going to do your damn best to achieve a lot. Problem is, sometimes things aren't within our control, right? So not everything in the world is within our control. And so if you think your value comes from what you do and not who you are, not just being in a human body, you're going to be ultimately driven by fear, right? Driven by fear of failing, by fear of being judged, by fear of people leaving you if you fail. Um, and that's a scary place to be, especially as if for the entrepreneurs listening, um, it puts you on a roller coaster. Because since failure is inevitable in something like entrepreneurship, if you're tying who you are to your achievements, every day is going to be scary as hell. Yeah, yeah, we really are. And don't, but don't almost all of us deal with that fear on almost a regular basis? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's central to the human experience. And that's a good point. And so one of the things, one of kind of my mantras that I work with clients around is in the book as well as um, high intention, low attachment. So let's talk about high intention. So having okay. a desire, really strong desire to achieve something specific in the world, I think that's great. Actually, don't subscribe to the more um, orthodox view in Buddhism of all desire is bad. I'm more in Tara Brock's camp, if you know of her, of the it's it's how you're being with that desire. So I think having a high desire is great. It's part of it's one of the things that fires me up, gets me excited about my goals. I think that's fantastic. Um, you don't want to be someone who has low desire and kind of wants to cushion themselves by not wanting too much. Um, right. But the second part, low attachment. Often with high achieving people, problem is they both have high desire and high attachment. Okay, so the problem with being attached to a result is uh, that's what we that's what it is when we're talking about we t- we stake our self worth on that, right? So the best way to be, and if you want to perform at a high level, and if you also want to have a deep sense of well being, is to have low attachment. So I have a high intention. This is something I want and I'm going after. But my attachment to that result, I'm okay with releasing because fundamentally, I'm good. I'm okay. And I think that's one of the things that meditation helps distill in us is that belief that stuff is good exactly as it is. I don't need this thing. And also, this thing in the future that I may be attached to is not going to fix anything fundamentally. Because when you get to the six figures, you're still bringing yourself to the six figures. So if you're a frustrated, angry dude, that's still you and now in the six figure situation, right? right? So cultivating that sense of high intention, but low attachment, I think is one of the best places to be. Um, and that ultimately comes down to dancing with that fear, as Seth Godin would say, you know, who I had the opportunity to interview. Um, how, what is your relationship to those fears that come up when you think that your value comes from what you do? And so that's what I do a lot of thinking about is, is what's the fear? How do we be okay with that so that we can lessen the attachment that we have and ultimately perform better in the different areas of our life? Right. So we need to dig in and work on our intention. How do we do that? I think it comes to, it comes down to figuring out what you really want, you know, as humans. And you know this, you know, I read some of your, some of your website as someone in kind of the coaching world, people don't think a lot about what they want. We spend right. a lot of time thinking about what we don't want, what, what the lack of what we are experiencing, and ultimately that attracts more into our world. Um, so really just taking a step back, that's something you can do with a coach, with a friend, with yourself, with a quiet space, but actually thinking hard about what is that I want. And that's what I mean by high intention is um, 
the people who aren't intentional about what they want and putting a stake in the ground around that ultimately obviously end up in a life or in a business that is unsatisfying. And that's, to me, one of the biggest tragedies in the world, especially as, um, I mean, let's be honest, we're in this kind of success um, wellness industry. A lot of the leaders are white males and we have a lot of options. We're in a very privileged position by and large. And sometimes that overwhelms people, right? So you get the paradox of choice. I have so many options. I don't really know what I want. A lot of different stuff could be good. So we don't actually put a stake in the ground about what we want to be the best in the world at, about how we want our life to look like, about who we want in it. But that's a very important thing to decide. You know, maybe this is arbitrary, but this is just what I feel like I want right now. I want to be able to get up and determine what I do for work. I want to be able to get up and have a space to have a quieter, slower morning. Can I find a job? Can I find a business that allows me to do that? Um, so that's what I mean by high intention. Right, right. I see. And then low attachment, then we just have to we have to work on making sure that our attachment isn't driving us. Yeah. So this comes down to awareness, right? So a, a, some signs that you have a high attachment to something is you feel like you're kind of forcing it. So it's like if I'm filling a group program, for example, I had this experience um, when I was filling one of my signature programs a couple of times ago and I, I felt really attached to getting the right people and enough people in the group and I noticed I was kind of forcing it. It was starting to feel really like a slog and I had to step back and realize, okay, there's some real attachment here and so aware, bring awareness to it. Where are you feeling like you, you're clutching, you're kind of clinging tightly to something, a certain result and what might happen if you let go of that just a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about allowing and just letting things happen. And it's it's something that I think is important too, but some of my clients have a really hard time with that concept. What's a way that you communicate that to your clients? You know, one of the biggest things for me is actually just focusing on the process. So for me, I because I'm the type of person, probably it sounds like your clients are too, I, I really consider myself a high achiever. I'm driven. I like to make things happen. It's actually a mode that I really enjoy being in. So totally just allowing and letting the universe take care of everything to me doesn't resonate as strongly. So I struggle with that. So the way I've developed as a strategy is instead of focusing on the outcome, which usually causes attachment, I just focus on the process. And that helps me allow and let go of whatever outcome is going to come from that. Because ultimately, the only thing you can control is the controllables. It's how you're being. It's the systems that you set up in your life and your day, right? It's about your ability to learn who you surround yourself with. So um, typically when I feel someone has trouble allowing or when I have trouble allowing, it's just like, um, is there a way where I could focus more on the process right now and more on, about what I can control and allow the results to work themselves out however they need to based on that? Mindful Tribe, we're just hearing so many great thoughts and ideas here about how to move forward, how to have low attachment and high intention. And, and I'm just wondering, Greg, if you could share with Mindful Tribe an experience you've had with a client where it was just incredible how you moved them from one place to a better place. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to mention names because we have kind of confidentiality agreements around that. But sure. I have one client who's um, total champion, love this guy. And, uh, he's been really focused on his goal of reaching 500 K of breaking 500 K in his business. Um, very successful entrepreneur up to this point. He's just kind of been plateauing. What we realized really early on in the enrollment process was it was not that he needed more 
external hacks. He didn't need to learn more. This guy knows a lot about the technology he uses, marketing, sales, all of that. It was, um, it was his relationship to his goals and his relationship to his process. There was a, there was a very high attachment there. Uh, there was a very, there was a lot of saying 500 K, right. There was like a lot of mentioning the goal. Um, and that had gotten him to a certain point in his development. And so, um, about three months in, um, you know, as, as growth was continuing things like that, but there was this specific point in three months that I remember where we really set a whole new foundation. And he, um, a lot of it comes that we're, we're talking about self-worth. A lot of it just comes down to confidence when you want to let go of something it requires confidence. It requires faith. If you don't have that base of confidence in yourself, then you're not going to let the universe handle it because you don't feel like you can deal with any circumstances that come up. And so um, he reached a point where, you know, through a confluence of factors in our coaching, um, he really had this. And I remember specifically the outcome of this one session was like this really true feeling in his bones of I've got this. You know, and he told me the story about when he was doing some team building thing with his team. And it was, I don't know what it was. It must have been a corporate training program or something. And they had people do simulations. And they were like, you were like an Indian tribe and you were at war. And he, they had a Native American tribe and there were different simulations. And he remembered this moment where uh, they, they allow the tribe leader to... Um, if the tribe leader goes and fights in a battle and he dies, the whole tribe dies. So like you want to really want to be careful as your tribe leader. And they had elected him as, as, as the tribe leader. And he had the opportunity to either step in or stay out of it. And he remembered this specific moment where he was like, Hey, I got this. And he stepped in, even though he was risking whatever kind of fictional game they were playing. And he was able to re-embody kind of that sense of being of, I've got this, I'm confident and whatever strategy or technique needs to get me there, I'll figure out. But I don't need to go rely on the, the gurus out there and follow just their systems. There's my own way of doing it. And so that was a really great moment. And since then, it's been like a whole new sense of ease with the growing of the business. That's a great story, Greg. And speaking of stories, Mindful Tribe, for free, you can download my book I did with Brian Tracy. And it has so many stories about entrepreneurs and how they achieve success. And we can all learn about how we can achieve success just by reading these kinds of stories. Download the book for free at mindfulnessmode.com slash cracking. Cracking the Success Code is the name of the book. So, Greg, let's move toward another topic. I've worked in bullying prevention for over a decade, and there's so many layers and so many ways that mindfulness really is related to bullying, whether it's the bullying we do to ourselves in our own mind, whether it's a situation that happened when we were a kid or it's somebody in the workplace. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness may have made a difference? I don't no, no nothing's coming to mind. I find that fascinating. Um, I can't I can't think of anything. I've been fortunate. I've been really fortunate that that wasn't something that I experienced, and it wasn't something that I was around. And so let me ask you this: Have you experienced working with a client where they were essentially bullying themselves, holding themselves back, and you had to help them release that voice? Yes. Um, so something that comes to mind in terms of getting in our own way with it, which is often a huge, huge issue for entrepreneurs, but also for people in careers um, in other industries. You know, I have a client and she, 
uh, another channel. All my clients are champions. <laughs> say that about everyone, but yeah. love working yeah. with her. She runs a boot camp in LA, and um, she's a fitness trainer and coach. And she, for a long time, she wasn't charging what she needed to charge to make the business mm-hmm. sustainable. And her most urgent goal when she came to me was, I need to raise prices, but I don't know how. And we very quickly figured out that there was a underlying fear there of if I charge prices, everyone will leave and I won't be able to do the great work that I love to do with people. I won't be able to serve these people. And um, through both the outer strategy of how to do that effectively and both her inner strategy of being able to release those fears and seeing that even in the sh- even though in the short term, she felt like she was being gracious by not raising prices in the long term it was it wasn't serving anyone it was actually being selfish because she wasn't willing to embrace that discomfort in order to serve her clients at a higher level and keep the business running um and so she ended up increasing her boot camp prices by 150 percent believe it or not and that um and only i think like one or two people left so she kept almost all of her clients was able to double her revenue and that was from her getting to a place where she was able to get out of her own way. She wasn't bullying herself. She wasn't being unclear about the value she was providing. She was finally kind of bringing in that love for herself where she could go and do that confidently and not be scared of the consequences. Right. So she had a sort of limiting belief that was holding her back and you were able to take her through that and confront it. Yeah. Oh, that's that's just great. Greg, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? I got to go back to Tara Brock because uh, I started with her guided meditations. I actually had the chance because I'm right outside of D.C. Mm -hmm. to attend uh, one of her workshops. Mm -hmm. And she's brilliant. I think she does a really good job of attracting people who are not necessarily fundamentally that spiritual, but they're kind of driven people who need to integrate this into their lives. And so I think she's doing a huge service through that. Yeah, she's amazing. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? I think it's helped me help me with that roller coaster that we mentioned. It's helped me, it's helped me create uh, less high highs and less low lows and have them not be so dependent on outside circumstances. Have it have me be kind of the agent of how those emotions play out. Um, so, for example, if in the past I would get really, really excited if I got a new great client and really, really bummed out if someone said no, now there's no attachment to that emotionally to that process. You know, I'm good kind of either way emotionally. There's maybe things strategically that I can change or improve, but um, I think that's been one of the biggest ways is, is helping me uh, have not such big fluctuations in them. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. So I, I really do mindful meditation. So I, it's, it's all focused on the breathing. Um, I don't do mantra-based stuff. So um, I think it's all through breath. I don't really know exactly what more to say about it. But to me, breathing is huge. Breathing is the center of everything. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? I would say one, I would recommend um, Tar Brock's Radical Acceptance. And two, I would recommend... Don't Let the Fear Win by Greg Faxon. (laughs) All right. Yeah, well, I I certainly uh, figured you'd mention your own book, and uh, it's good to hear another book as well, so that's great. Do you have an app which helps you to be more mindful? Right now, I use primarily Insight Timer, and I only use that if I want a guided meditation. Um, In the past, I've used things like Calm and, you know, Headspace's kind of free trial, but now in the majority of times, it's just me in silence. 
Right. Yeah. Insight Timer is a great app. What advice would you give a person who's new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? I would say to do the 60 second thing for a week. Just just really low bar for yourself. 60 seconds, focus on your breathing, count your breath. Um, it's like with habit formation, people talk about if you want to like form a new flossing habit, just floss your front teeth for a week. And after that's so easy, you have to do it. And then mm-hmm. you eventually you'll be like, well, this is kind of silly. I should you know, floss more than that. And so you'll do it on your own if you get those quick wins. So I would just say commit to a week of 60 seconds a day just focused on your breathing. Great tip. Great tip. Yeah, I noticed that you have a dog and that's an important part of your life. Is there an element of mindfulness that you experience in having a dog and having that dog as part of your life? Absolutely. My dog's name is Scout and she's awesome. And there's two big things that I think she's that I think she coaches me on that she's great at. One is and this is true of a lot of different animals, but you'll notice that when they're on, when they're aroused in some way, they're really on and then they're very quickly able to be off. So a dog perks, you know, her head up and mm-hmm. Okay, it's nothing, and then it's going back to relax. And I think as humans, we do a pretty bad job of that in modern times. We kind of have that chronic underlying stress, which is so detrimental to our health and our ability to think clearly. And so the number one thing I've learned is the ability to turn it on and off consciously and intentionally. Um, And then the second thing I've learned is just the um, kind of childlike joy. The dogs get excited about stupid little things, and I think that that's something I lost track of for a while when I, you know, from being young. And I think dogs just help with that of not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. We have a dog and a couple of cats and, uh, we, we just laugh at some of the antics sometimes and it just does help you relax and look at, look at the world in a different way for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, it has been really great talking with you today. Mindful Tribe would love to connect with you. How can we do that and learn more about you and your book? I would say go to gregfaxon.com. So F-A-X-O-N is the last name. And uh, that's kind of my home base. You can get lots of different resources from there. If you're looking to start a business, but you don't have ideas, I have a toolkit on that. If you want the first free chapter of my book, you'll be able to download it there. Great, great. Well, Greg, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise with us on mindfulness and mindset. It's really been excellent. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate you. Okay, bye now. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. Don't forget to download your free copy of Cracking the Success Code with Brian Tracy, myself, and other entrepreneurs where you'll read our stories and learn from them for your own life and for your own business. Go to mindfulnessmode.com cracking for your free book. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.